I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. shop in Hong Kong and I'm sitting here with Arthur Hayes who's the CEO and founder of the world's largest uh, Bitcoin exchange BitMEX. Uh, Arthur, it's great to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. It's good to be here in Starbucks after we got kicked out of a Japanese restaurant for being dressed inappropriately. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always, I, I, I always think you haven't made it in, in life until you've been asked to leave. Exactly. <laughs> and then you negotiate with them and get in anyways. That's right. And, you know, when you think of all the possible troublemaking industries uh, these days, I think cryptocurrencies have got to be one of them. I mean, there um, there are speculators' delight, there are regulators' nightmare, um, and I guess if your mission is to be believed, they could help the world's great unbanked finally get access to financial services. Absolutely, it's everything and all, and nothing at the same time. <laughs> so, so let, let's maybe start because I know there on this show there are some people who are probably very heavy into Bitcoin and are probably living on an island right now as a result. But a lot of people are a bit confused. So uh, the big talk these days is not just Bitcoin, it's uh, Ethereum. Can, can you maybe explain the differences between the two? So Bitcoin is a form of uh, open source uh, money. And so the value of Bitcoin is because it has a limited supply, 21 million Bitcoin will ever be mined. Um, the last Bitcoin will be mined somewhere around 2140. And um, Bitcoin is used to secure a decentralized blockchain, which is where we get the word blockchain from, which um, people apply to many things, <laughs> rightly and wrongly. And so Bitcoin is used as a form of money. People use it to pay for things. Um, people also use it as a store of value. So people who don't want to hold their money in US dollars or gold will hold a portion of Bitcoin. And at the end of the day, Bitcoin has value because it is used for for commerce and for moving value across the internet. Right. Now when you contrast that to Ethereum, Ethereum, and if you ask the Ethereum Foundation, they'll tell you Ethereum is not money, it is not a currency. Um, Ethereum is used to power this decentralized computer that they've built uh, using the Ethereum protocol. And so anyone who downloads this open source piece of software can build their decentralized application on top of it. So Ethereum is designed to run code? Correct. And, and, and so an Ether essentially is it like a unit of computation? Yes, so it is a right to run your code. And so to upkeep this network, um, people around the world are using computing power, which costs energy and resource and development uh, and chips and whatnot. They need to get paid. They get paid in Ether, and they get paid in Ether by people using the Ethereum protocol to run their application. So no one's mining um, Ethereum? Yes, there are miners who essentially get rewarded Ether every block. Right. It comes out on its particular blockchain. Okay. And, and is that like, but it's not like Bitcoin in that it's not a set number of Ether? Correct. There's a built-in inflation of Ether in the network. Right. And so there will never be a point where no Ether are ever not produced again. So when you hear these stories about, um, you know, Ethereum miners chartering 747s to fly graphics cards, what's actually... What's actually driving that? What are they trying to achieve? Well, the, basically the marginal cost of producing um, one ether, which essentially is their electricity, um, the decay of their capex to build that 
that data center and how much it costs them to source the, the latest. Less the cost of the 747. Yeah. <laughs> and the latest NVIDIA or ATI um, GPU chip, um, say that cost is $10. Right. And you know, a few months ago, the price of Ethereum skyrocketed to $400. So they're making you know, 40X on every Ethereum, Ether, that they mine. So obviously they're incentivized to ramp up production because they want to have a greater percentage of the total network, what we call hash rate, that is um, co contributing computing power to upkeeping the Ethereum network and essentially being credited Ether. Do, do you create Ether similar to uh, Bitcoin by solving a very complex mathematical puzzle? So each, this is a different algorithm for how you solve this particular um, puzzle. Um, and each different coin has their own different way of uh, doing this, what's called a, a proof of work right. algorithm. And a specific type of computer chip will be needed to complete these different types of algorithms. So it's actually amazing that uh, the graphic cards companies haven't actually invented their own currency. Exactly, but they're, they're <laughs> loving the, the, all the demand that they're seeing. Yeah. So does the solving the puzzle for Ethereum actually executing the code itself, or is that a separate activity that network well, this helps run the smart contracts on the Ethereum network because transactions okay. have to get processed, which helps run these these smart contracts. I'm fascinated by this, this idea of the smart contract because people are talking about it even in the future applying to, you know, locks. So rather than having a, um, you know, a, a sort of a, a national system where you've got a chain of title, you actually have a decentralized network that keeps information about property and the, the building will let you in or not depending on your, um, you know, on your status. Yeah, there's just so many cool startups that are dealing with property, ownership, um, identity, where you are in space. Um, so there's lots of people working on really cool ways. What of, do you mean where you are in space? So um, how do I, where are we? What, how, do we, how do I know that I'm here and you are there, right? Um, that, that who, who are you, where are you, how can you interact with this where I am by an API? There are people working on having a way to do this. But isn't that just a GPS location thing? Like, like how is that relevant to blockchain? Well, um, you have to trust a centralized source of data. So how can you make where I am a decentralized consensus? Right. And how would that work? Would it be basically um, in reference to other people? I actually don't know. But this is, <laughs> right. I, I, I go no, to no, a... No, no, it's a really interesting area because I know, for example, that logistics companies are trying to think philosophically about how they shift from delivering to an address to delivering to a person. Right. And um, there is no centralized database of persons. Correct. And you know, how do I, how do I prove that I am who I am? So, so this is what these ICOs are, right? Like these, uh, these different applications. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so essentially it is, you know, the traditional way of financing a technology product is I set up a company and I sell a piece of equity in that company and then I produce a product to get some traction and I go back again and I ask for some more money and this whole process takes a lot of time um, right. and it's very hard for most startups to even you know get past the seed funding stage but then we had Kickstarter which was saying okay well we can't do equity crowdfunding because there's you know securities laws in most countries that prohibit prohibit that without filing with a regulator so we're going to pre-sell my particular product. And that was a revolution in, you know, that's how Oculus uh, came about. I pre-sold my gear, I'm able to now fund the next uh, run of my particular uh, thing that I'm producing. Uh, now we move to the, the other stage and say, okay, why don't I sell a usage, a right to use an application 
at, at a future date. Right. And most of the time they haven't even built this application yet. I'm telling the world, I will do this. This is what it'll do. This is why you think should, should think it's valuable. These are who we are. This is who we are and why you should believe that we can do it. Now, how about you buy a piece to use this application? Because the only way you're going to use this amazing thing that we're going to produce is if you have this token. Right. And so I'm going to pre-sell this token today, then develop my application, and maybe sometime <laughs> in the future. So maybe it would just be a, spe a speculation. Maybe I'll just run off with it and go to Thailand right. on a boat. But, but this, is, this is where these business plans become almost like Ponzi schemes because you can, you know, as long as everyone believes that the idea might get done at some point, the value keeps going up and they actually don't necessarily have to ever deliver on the actual application. Correct. I mean, just like most startups fail, most ICOs will fail as well. Right. And, and Ether is underneath this as sort of a sub-layer, right? Because the, the, unlike, unlike Bitcoin, where the value is to some extent predicated on the limited supply, with Ether, it's actually the future value of the applications running on the network. So the biggest reason why many of these ICOs you launch on the Ethereum network is, number one, their, their whole application is built using Ethereum. So they need to actually raise Ethereum to power their actual underlying application. Right. So their application cannot run without them as their project spending Ether. Right. And so, so, so as there's more hype over their coins that they're launching, it also drives as a result the, the value of Ether. Correct. So the theoretical value of Ethereum or any protocol level uh, coin is a sum of the value of all applications ever to be launched on that. There's a certain genius, I think, in, in, the, in the founders of Ethereum there. They, they almost, uh, they win either way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, Vitalik and the team that has built Ethereum are definitely smart, but there's no, there are issues in the Ethereum network. One of the things that's been a problem is that, okay, so Ethereum is so successful, there's, there were so many ICOs earlier this year that the network ground to a halt. So many people were raising money. You just couldn't the block. The block slowed down. You, you couldn't use it. So, you know, as if there's a really successful ICO happening, you as a, an application who need to use the same bandwidth can't run your application. Yeah. So Ethereum has failed the people that it's actually trying to help. And so what's going to have to happen is that Ethereum is going to have to undergo a complete change in its protocol to allow for it to scale the amount of transactions it can process if it's really going to live up to this lofty goal of being a decentralized computer for the world. And, and strangely enough, this is the, exactly the issue that Bitcoin's faced. You know, and I think you know, in, in recent times we've seen the spectacular fork in the currency, Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. Um, and as an exchange, did you, you, you've actually so, so far decided not to support the Bitcoin Cash, is that right? Correct. Uh, we believe that um, these type of forks place an undue burden on exchanges and wallets. Um, we can't be expected to commit precious resources every time somebody wants to essentially distribute their version of Bitcoin or altcoin via a hard fork. And well, so we've taken a stand by saying that if you want your, if you wanted your Bitcoin Cash, you're freely, you could freely withdraw your Bitcoin, get your Bitcoin Cash, give us back your Bitcoin. That's fine. <laughs> we have no problem. We have every Bitcoin that we say we have, we do have, right. and we will give it to you if it's you like want it. It's like saying you'll take US dollars, but you won't accept rubles. Exactly. So, so what, what, what drove the fork? Like, what, what, what was really behind this, this kind of so, shift? So initially, um, Jihan Wu, head of Bitmain, uh, proposed a user-activated hard fork um, as a contingency if the Bitcoin network split due to the um, SegWit debate and the user-activated soft fork um, going through, which would have caused possibly 
a chain split. So he said, okay, if the chain split happens on the 1st of August, uh, we are going to go ahead with a hard fork to a version of Bitcoin with a larger block size and no uh, SegWit. Now, at the last minute, all the miners said, okay, we're going to do a face-saving compromise called SegWit2x, which is we'll launch SegWit now, we'll agree to activate SegWit now, and we're going to do a, a hard fork to a two megabyte block size limit later this fall. Uh, so the user activated soft fork was avoided, chain split was avoided, and then another team that may or may not be connected to Jihan said, we're gonna do the hard fork anyways. Uh -huh. And we're gonna call this hard fork Bitcoin Cash. And so... And was there, was there hope that basically this would become the new default currency? Some people believe that. Um, some people just think it's free money and right. they, they want to get Bitcoin Cash because they think they can sell it for something. Right. So what happened was an exchange called VIBTC launched a futures contract on the value of Bitcoin Cash before the fork <laughs> actually, did hap actually happened and it traded at a very high price, something like 400 US dollars. So everyone's like, oh, I can, I'm gonna get 400 US dollars just by holding Bitcoin. Like free money, I'm, I'm all for it. So you had all these customers badgering exchanges to essentially commit precious development resources to supporting what was a very haphazardly produced hard fork. So there's a lot of you know chaos in these cryptocurrency markets, but but what you're trying to build uh, with BitMEX is, is actually really nothing to do with cryptocurrencies other than a form of funding. Is Correct. We like Bitcoin and other forms of decentralized open source money because it allows us to programmatically onboard customers for zero cost. And it allows us to accept a customer from at a price point where most traditional financial services institutions just can't operate. So you, this is an interesting expression, programmatically onboard customers. So would you say a traditional bank programmatically onboards customers? In the sense that you fill out 5,000 forms <laughs> and sign them, especially in Hong Kong. <laughs> so, so really the advantage here is um, you're able to not only acquire customers more easily, you can deal with different types of customers. Exactly. And if you, even if you deposit one cent or a hundred million US dollars, it's the same cost to us and the same process to onboard you. Right. And, and when we spoke before, you said that this allows you to provide banking services to people with a dollar. Um, can you talk a bit about that and why that's important? So, I mean, our, you know, we believe that digital currencies are amazing because, as I said, they let you let anyone transact with money at a much lower cost. Like handling a paper bill is expensive relatively uh, on a small scale, which is why banks basically arose to you know, centralize that function, yeah. and provide security for gold, dollars, whatever uh, types of currency. Now a bank has op overhead operating costs, regulatory operating costs, which prevent them from dealing with, especially these days, very small customers. So that basically means that if you want to have simple banking services, you know, trade currencies, trade some, uh, some stocks, trade some bonds. Even just save money. Even save money, you need to be relatively wealthy. Top 10 to 20% of humans globally have banking services. Uh, now that's great, there's plenty of businesses that are worth billions of dollars who service that particular marketplace. Now even using Bitcoin, we can't compete with the likes of a Charles Schwab, Citibank, uh, in that particular segment. We want to compete in a segment where they don't even want to or they can't compete, which is the rest of the 80% of the world. They still need to save, invest, speculate. Well, why are they any different than anyone else? They just have less money and it costs, costs more money as a firm to onboard them. But it's not that simple actually getting Bitcoin. I mean, it's still a complicated process. So if you have a dollar, how do you get Bitcoin? 
Yeah, like what's it's, the simplest? At, at the moment, it's not very easy to, as if you have a dollar to buy Bitcoin. Right. So our bet is that um, companies who deal in the spot transaction of Bitcoin will essentially spring up, which they are in most jurisdictions. With ATMs almost. ATMs or you know, bank wires or what, what have you. Western Union type models. Yeah, to yeah. essentially provide the on-ramp for people into the digital world. Once you're in the digital world, then you have companies like BitMEX who can offer you financial products. Makes sense. I mean, I guess we still have a way to go. I mean, people thought that the whole um, repatriation market was going to go to cryptocurrencies very quickly. All the people from the Philippines sending money home. but. It hasn't played out quite like that. Is it really still the complexities of dealing with cryptocurrencies? I think it's the last mile problem. Right. If I'm in, you know, right, Island 7000 in the Philippines, do I really have a bank branch there? The Western Union agent's there because he can afford to put physical outposts to deal with that cash and give it to me. That's the value of Western Union, what MoneyGram or any of these services. Yeah, they charge 10%, but it's 10% because they have to have a physical agent in remote parts of the world. Right. Bitcoin doesn't solve that yet. You know, a lot of we spoke about bank inefficiency and 500 documents. There is some talk at banks of using blockchain uh, to try and improve their efficiencies. But uh, I got the sense that you're not particularly bullish on that idea. No, I think banks want to seem like they're forward-thinking, and the reason why their services charge so much is because of antiquated technology. Right. But it's not the case. The reason why banking services cost so much is because banks don't have any competition other than other banks. And usually it's a government-granted charter, so only a subset of individuals, very small, are able to get this charter. Thereby, they have no competition to reduce their fees. Banking fees are not are expensive because they don't need to be cheap. So this is this is the secret reason why there are still only fax machines in operation in the commercial banking in the world. <laughs> yeah, they don't need to be more efficient. Who's providing the competition? But just you know, if you can do interbank settlements now with blockchain, which is like some of the banks talk about this now using Ripple. Um, does, does it actually need to use blockchain? I mean, is that really like what blockchain's? No, I mean, for? The, banks could use a database. They could ship the database between themselves. They could secure the database. They banks know a lot about security and over the internet uh, and intranet. Right. They don't need to go and pay a few hundred thousand US dollars for a proof of concept from a startup, but they do that for publicity. The real reason why they aren't cheaper is because they don't need to be cheaper. Right. So if you were going to blow up a bank today and re reinvent it, uh, what would you do? I think a lot of people are looking at you know, online-only banks, mobile-first banks, uh, where you know I have an electronic credit because at the end of the day, all money, cash money, is going to be uh, regulated away by governments. They don't want cash. Yeah. They want it to be purely digital. So at that point, you have a purely digital bank. There is no need for a branch because you don't have any physical cash to transact with. And so you have a mobile app. Uh, you have a mobile bank. Mobile bank has mobile banking services. Now that that's a truly now, there's lots of control issues there, but at the end of the day, there is no need for you to go to a physical teller and deal with cash. Weirdly, this is all, almost already happening now in China uh, with uh, uh, Weixin. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I'm always amazed when I see the huge volume of people who pay for everything with this, to the extent that you'll see beggars in the street taking, uh, you know, with QR codes, and, and you have stores that don't take credit cards or cash, only payment with WeChat. Yeah, and it's definitely where governments want things to go because they want full control over everything you do. But the governments actually want, this is a bit of a misconception isn't it, because people often talk about currencies, governments developing cryptocurrencies, but actually they just want fascist currencies. They just want an electronic representation of the unit of account that they deem legal tender. So they can trace everything? Everything. Right. So there'll be no more black economy because it'll only be government cash? Correct.
So it'll be interesting in one of these new markets whether you know one of these um, uh, cryptocurrencies ends up becoming sort of the default national underground currency, just given like rampant inflation and the unpredictability of, of the currency. Yeah, it could be like the new form of U.S. dollar, but uh, in the digital gold version. Yeah. Uh, which would be terrifying for governments, I guess. I don't think so. I mean, the majority of commerce is still going to need to be done in whichever currency they deem legal tender. Yeah. You have to pay your taxes in that particular currency. So India, India, you say you think India and China are quite a long way down the track with this? Yeah, I think India is probably the closest um, because, you know, Modi has seemed to be very resilient in the few elections that his party has had, even after his um, demonetization effort. And there's obviously lots of businesses and people who are experiencing real economic and, and physical pain due to the fact that their money is now worthless and they have to use these electronic systems they have no idea how to use. But even still, he's, he's still popular in India and he's still pushing ahead with these, these uh, measures to essentially digitize the whole economy, have a digital identity for one billion people who now, and businesses can interact with that digital identity by an open API. How does, Imagining a world where you actually have a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin that becomes the, the form of payment, how does that change daily life? Because I mean, in a weird way, it's incredibly deflationary um, in that if you have speculators driving the price up, the value of it, you get frightened to even spend any money because whatever you paid for pizza last week could buy a car like a, a month later. Well, I mean, we used to use gold as a, as a form of payment. It's a deflationary currency. Um, but but not to the same extent. I mean, the value of gold wasn't... Yes, that's because probably the value of gold did quadruple when it was first discovered, and more and more people use it as payment. Right. I don't. We don't have a price series to know what that initial phase of adoption of gold as payment. We only know two thousand years later, gold is a very stable form of money. Bitcoin. So you, do you think Bitcoin will also stabilize? At some point, if it's deemed useful, there will be you know massive you know run up in the uh, the price of Bitcoin up until a point where it's now stable enough to use. Right. And, and I guess at that point, if you think about it, I mean, people will be dealing with fractions of Bitcoins. Right? Correct. And it'll be via some sort of um, application and do all the math for you. So it won't be, even be an issue. Right. Do, do you think, um, I mean, given that the chain's constantly being uh, updated, will it become practical at that point to actually use it as a form of exchange? Or will it be more of a reserve reference currency? It could be. Um, so there could be. Uh, it seems nuts that every time you go to Starbucks, that you have to update the whole chain. Right, and so there is transactional issues with using Bitcoin to do small micropayments. Now, obviously, there are people who say that they have a way to solve that issue right. um, and scale Bitcoin so that you know, we can buy a cup of Starbucks coffee with Bitcoin. Just like a block of gold, right? I mean, you wouldn't yeah. take a shave off a bit of gold to buy. Exactly, and that's why paper money was a representation of a fraction of a block of gold held with a trusted counterparty. So who knows how this is all going to evolve in you know, 50 to 100 years time with the whole digitization of value transfer. Yeah. So for, for, for financial services in general, I mean, um, what, have, what have you been observing with your own exchange? I mean, what are some of the new behaviors that, that you're seeing as a result of, I guess, people who wouldn't normally use this kind of service now have access to Bitcoin? Well, I mean, our particular, our clients are mostly um, people who hide Bitcoin and they're like, okay, what do I do with my Bitcoin now? I'm not going to buy a cup of Starbucks coffee. I do believe in the whole ecosystem. So let me bet on what other currencies are going to be valuable or let me, let me speculate what the future value of Bitcoin is. Because you guys are offering 100 to 1 leverage, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we started out with, you know, Bitcoin enthusiasts, very technologically savvy people. They might not have been 
so sophisticated in the financial services space, but they wanted to use their Bitcoin to you know, make more Bitcoin. Now that volume, the volume profile has changed and so that it's sort of like almost accepted as, okay, this is not going away. We're seeing more financial services professionals. Okay, well, let me get into Bitcoin. So you definitely see uh, a lot of refugees from the banking industry now trying to hop <laughs> into the next hot field of finance, which is digital currencies, uh, and trying to find roles and find their place in this financial services industry built around digital currencies. Do so you think hedge funds and companies will have like uh, cryptocurrency trading debts? Absolutely. I get LinkedIn messages every week from, really? from a person who's setting up a digital currency hedge fund. So well, it's it, kind of hard to ignore those returns given the lack of volatility everywhere else. Exactly. So it's a volatile currency. Maybe it goes up a lot. It also goes down a lot. But that's perfect for a trader. Right. What you don't want is a market that just slowly creeps upwards and has very few drawdowns, um, which is what we have today in the majority of other asset classes. The, the rise of these sort of programmatic algorithmic currencies uh, in some ways parallels the the broader rise of algorithms in financial services and financial products. And you know, this is an area that's interested me a lot because I'm trying to imagine in other fields other than finance, as algorithms take over more decision making and you have you know, human roles that are more about looking for signals in massive amounts of data, it seems to be a similar skill set. So I mean, what, what, what do you think, given your observations, I know you used to be a trader um, and you've seen this now develop. You know, when you look at really successful people in, in, in this sort of algorithmic financial world, what, what things are they good at, you know, um, that they're able to do over and above what computers can do? Well, it's really about noticing where to apply computers before your competitor. Right. So, um, you know, if, you're all, if, you're, if everyone's just trading S&P 500 stocks, you know, can you build a better algorithm than somebody? Maybe. But there's thousands of other firms who are targeting that, that, that subsect of stocks. How are you going to differentiate yourself? Well, maybe I can apply a computer trading to Bitcoin. Super irrational, um, it's a free market, uh, trades 24-7. Volatility. Volatility, exactly. So why don't I apply computers and these strategies that's worked in other asset classes to Bitcoin? So it's applying similar strategies to other market economies. So the skill is really, if I'm hearing you correctly, is it's figuring out where computation could be applied that hasn't previously been applied. Correct. Because otherwise you're just competing in a, a never-ending race and at some, at some of the day you're not going to make any money. Right. Because I mean, not everyone's co-located now and you can't make money on speed. You have to be doing something different. Correct. Right. So the, the most sought-after minds in, in quant funds around the world are those creative thinkers who can see opportunity, essentially, not, not just programmers. Maybe. I mean, I don't really know what's going on <laughs> at Renaissance and some yeah, of these yeah. other very profitable uh, algorithmic trading shops, but you know, it's, a, it's known that your algorithm, its alpha, will decay over time, as people discover, especially with so many computers chasing so few opportunities, you're not going to be the smartest guy in the room for very long. Yeah. So eventually, the same logic could apply to marketing. I mean, if you've got... Um, a war for customers and attention, you've got programmatic algorithms that you know, look for different campaigns to attract traffic. It's the same logic about where you apply computation in new ways before your alpha decays. Exactly. So, I mean, billboard advertising used to be great, then it got too noisy. Um, putting banner ads up on, on Google AdWords used to be amazing. Now it's getting quite, quite noisy. So, um, as people consume media or consume any good differently, the method of advertising or you know talking to them changes and 
one way will work now for a few years and it won't work and then maybe it'll come back in fashion. But I mean one thing we're seeing is some of these algorithmic funds now starting to struggle a little because the machines are just competing with each other and you know it's almost just better to stick your money back in an index fund again. So I mean do you think we'll sort of come full circle as well? Uh, I mean I think the passive um, investing phenomenon over the past like 15, 20 years really hasn't had a real test market drawdown to see if there's really that liquidity that the ETF claims it has. Right. And there's lots of um, market professionals who have pointed out this fact. But essentially they're just Cassandra's until the market falls 50% and then liquidity we, we, drops We also out. haven't had a true algorithmic crash yet. Correct. I mean, we've had a few flash crashes, but I mean there must be so many of these systems and lines of code which could all feed back off each other with terrifying consequences. Right. I mean there was a firm called um, what were they called? No, they're not in business anymore. There's an algorithmic, uh, it was a market making firm. Yeah. And they had a bug in their code. They lost $400 million in about 10 minutes. And then they had to get bought out by, I think, GetGo and a few other firms in the state. So long firm, you know, decades of, of history obliterated in a matter of minutes from mm -hmm. one bad line of code. Because well, this is what people don't realize, I guess, is that these programs sit idle for the vast majority of time. I mean, their lifespan is in milliseconds <laughs> when, when, when they actually act. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's very scary when you get things wrong. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating world. Um, uh, and you know, even beyond all the speculation, uh, I think what you guys are doing in terms of trying to build a, a bank for the unbanked is uh, really uh, inspiring. So it's been wonderful meeting you, Arthur. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.